Hi, everyone. I'm Fraser Rice, and welcome to the Fraser Rice Podcast. By day, I'm a private banker where I've met many cool and fascinating people who contribute to urban life. This podcast will explore my curiosity with the artists, entrepreneurs, commentators, and tastemakers that affect the culture of New York City and beyond. And with that, let's dive into our first episode. In today's episode, we'll be talking about New York City architecture with Jane Merkel. Jane is a well-known architectural historian and the author of the acclaimed 2005 book, Aeroseronin. She is a book review editor of Architectural Record Magazine, an occasional contributor to the New York Times, and a member of the advisory board of the Architects newspaper. Welcome, Jane. Well, happy to be here. So one of the things that's really interesting to me is that New York City has really got an involving skyline. And I'd be interested to hear what you think about uh, downtown uh, with the World Trade Center uh, in it with its new building. What are your thoughts on that? Well, downtown is kind of coming back, but it's coming back because of the, the tragedy of 9-11. The skyscraper movement in New York, which was a little bit later than Chicago. Chicago kind of beat us to the punch a little bit with the earliest skyscrapers, and they were more technologically advanced. But our first skyscrapers were in downtown, you know, um, in the first decade. And then there was a concentration, but the, the sort of signature skyscrapers, the skyscrapers that everybody thinks about, uh, were in Midtown, uh, Chrysler and Empire State Building. And there wasn't much in the North until uh, after World War II. And those were all those modernist buildings like uh, Seagram's and Lever and their boxes. So they don't, and they went re- very, very tall. So they didn't really change the skyline very much. Mm-hmm. The New York skyline that people think of and see when they come across the bridge into Manhattan is really the downtown and a 1920s skyline. Right. Now we've got all these these skinny little guys that are square with flat tops on 57th Street and 53rd and Park that are, I mean, truly pencil thin, tiny little residential buildings with one or two apartments per floor. Big apartments, but, you know, two apartments per floor. Well, it's amazing when you come across the bridge and you see those, they, they, they stick out. And I just wonder, as you sort of look at that and say, you know, where is Manhattan going? Is there any sort of planning around that? Or is anyone sort of looking at how those buildings are going to fit in the context of, of the rest of the island? Well, they don't fit in the context very much. I think they're on 57th Street because it's one of the wider streets. Mm-hmm. And because it's a wider street, you would have a little bit more uh, FAR. In other words, you could go a little bit higher. But they're also allowed to go higher because they build some affordable housing. I mean, it, it's not a very rational idea that the way to get affordable housing is to give people extra feet of, in, their, in their towers. I mean, it's, it's completely kind of one of those crazy New York real estate zoning things. Right. But, of course... The reason they're on 57th rather than Park Avenue South, because it's a wider street, so they could go taller. And there's also the transportation there. That Not that those folks living in those towers are going to be taking the subway, I don't think. But it's also because since they're so tall, you could be two blocks away from Central Park and still have the Central Park view. It's the Central Park that's the, the draw up there. Right. So to get back downtown uh, with the New World Trade Center and uh, replacing the Twin Towers, uh, what are your thoughts on how that turned out? I think it's rather unfortunate, actually. Uh, The old World Trade Center was considered almost by everybody a a kind of a disaster. They took the old small city blocks, which are the fabric of lower Manhattan, the oldest part of New York, and they made these big super blocks, which seemed to be a really good idea after World War II, but did not seem to be a really good idea by the time that (laughs) Twin Towers came down or even by the time they were being built. And, um, and, you know, they they never made money. 
They were mostly filled with state employees or Port Authority employees. Um, there were few right-paying clients toward the end, but they were giving artists free space. So they were never successful. I think the uh, shopping mall downstairs made a lot of money, mm-hmm. but the, they, were, they were never economically successful. And aesthetically, people used to think they weren't attractive at all, but once they were knocked over, then all of a sudden there was a nostalgic sort of longing for them. Right. I I think it's peculiar or interesting anyway that uh, as skylines develop in a lot of major cities, New York's one of the few that had uh, one of its major features taken down and in such an unfortunate way, but it, it was just a real indelible mark. On, on the skyline generally. Well, you know, it was, it was interesting. I remember right after, uh, like the next day, we, were, we drove down to uh, Washington to see our daughter and driving down the highway in New Jersey and looking up and seeing that they were gone. I never really liked them, but when they were gone, there really was this longing. And, and it wasn't just the idea that somebody had blown up something in America because, you know, all countries get things blown up in them at some point. The idea that this could never happen here is, is kind of a silly idea. But they were so iconic. They were so large. And maybe we even felt a little guilty because we didn't like them very much and because the plaza was so barren. Uh, but once they were taken from us, then there was uh, obviously a desire to, to fix it. How do we fix it? Mm-hmm. There were so many meetings of architects and critics and historians and business people and politicians. And and really, I think most people with the best will in the world to make it better. But the best plans were the plans that were going to cut up those super blocks. And that couldn't happen because of the Port Authority ownership, because of Larry Silverstein, because of a whole variety of interests. It strikes me that that tower, uh, it's a major feature of downtown now, but it doesn't seem to be the best use of space down there to me. Well, it's a, it's a very compromised building. I mean, what happened is there was a, a competition for the development of that site, mm-hmm. and Danny Liebeskin won it. And Danny Liebeskin does kind of sliver tower-shaped things, glass, shard-like looking shapes. And he actually won the competition on the basis of the buildings that he had in his model. But the competition was for planning, not for buildings. Right. So he got won the competition, but he was not really elected to do any of the buildings. And he got to work with David Childs of Skidmore Wings and Merrill on this tower. And what you got was two men with two different aesthetics and a whole lot of cooks also trying to spoil the broth. And you got a building that was a compromise. Right. And, you know, it's shiny and it's fine. I think. The two things about it that are extremely weird, you know, one is that the first 40 stories are solid concrete, even though the old buildings were knocked down from the top. And this was because the police and the other um, security people all were worried that it would be bombed from below. So it's 40 stories of solid concrete. Then there's office space. And then it kind of ends, but they wanted it to be the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. So they put this huge, big aerial-like thing on top. But it doesn't, the building doesn't sort of, sort of sweep into that. It just kind of stands there. Right. So, you know, it's, it's not a terrible building, but it's, it's in such a prominent place and it's so big that it would, it would have been wonderful. It it could have been a slightly more inspiring building. Right. Very interesting. So, uh, what are the buildings that you really like in Manhattan and in the boroughs? Well, uh, there's going to be a new one today. There was one announced by uh, Norman Foster that's going to be down in the World Trade Center Mm -hmm. area. And I I think as it fills in, there will be be better ones. I think probably the most exciting 
change in the, in the city will be along the West Side Highway where there's this Bark Ingalls, this is a Danish architect, Bark Ingalls group, they go by BIG, where they, they're having a sort of pyramidal apartment building that sort of steps back up from the water. It looks like it's going to be fascinating. You know, along the High Line, some of, some of the nicest, really good buildings by um, architects or by New York architects, particularly Annabelle Seldorf, who did two of the really nice residential buildings down there. I think the Shigeru Bond building is just fascinating, and it's maybe because I think I love Shigeru Bond. He's a wonderful Japanese architect Mm -hmm. who goes all over the world when there are disasters and makes temporary buildings out of cardboard, things like that. Uh, But that's a a building in which the whole wall comes out. I mean, everything comes out. The glass goes away. It's just plain air. Probably gets filthy, but, you know, that's a very interesting building. And actually, as a building... Uh, the Vignoli building, the Raphael Vignoli building, 432 Park, the one that you see everywhere from every place, is a really quite nice building from a distance. Uh, it meets the ground in a kind of awkward way. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be, it has really nice apartment plans. It's going to be, uh, the interiors are done by an architect named Deborah Burke uh, that are very tasteful, you know, very, they're going to be really very elegant. And actually, that row of buildings on 57th Street is like a, a pantheon of famous architects. I mean, it really will be sort of like the Academy Awards of buildings. I mean, it's certainly Billionaire's Row. I, I work nearby, and I've watched them go up. And uh, it's fascinating to watch uh, that area become a bit more residential, but it's still dealing with a lot of different retail. You've got some high-end establishments nearby, but you've also got some lower-end types of restaurants and so on about. It looks like that area is going to be really pushing up in line with uh, the rest of the neighborhoods in the area. What makes that area appealing is that Carnegie Hall is there, the Art Students League is there, the Rizzoli Bookstore was there. It's not there. But there still is a sort of artsy stuff on the streets. Right. And if you, if you look at the history of New York, the rich have always followed the artists. The first well-off people to live in apartment buildings wanted to live in the studio apartments because artists lived in high-rise housing. And that's where the buildings with the big glass walls. And neighborhood after neighborhood that artists moved to, Soho was an example, 57th Street was an example, the artists would come and then it would become chic and then the artists would be priced out and the rich would come in. So there's a whole history in New York of money following the art, really. I was going to say, around 57th Street, how do you think the Time Warner Center holds up as sort of the the bulkhead of Columbus Circle? Well, I've never liked it. I mean, in the first place, on the street level, it's a shopping mall. Right. I mean, it's not even a particularly nice shopping mall. Well, it's nice if you like Whole Foods. (laughs) Well, yeah, yes, it does have a Whole Foods because we have one down here as well. But but I've never been up in those towers. They're not particularly graceful. I guess they have wonderful views, but they seem very hotel-like. And I think that's the problem with a lot of these buildings. They seem like hotels. Um, I have been in 157, the 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 new one across from um, Carnegie Hall, and um, it's very strange. Right. You know, I mean, it's 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 very cold. There is so much marble and so much glitter that they almost overwhelm the view. The views are extraordinary. I mean, the views are spectacular, but they are lo- there are they're airplane views. Sure. And there are no walls. I mean, if you have all glass walls, then, you know, there's no place to hang paintings and there's no place for your bookcase. And there's, you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's as a living environment, 
it's a little strange. Well, I always found I've been to the Time Warner Center and a couple of the places up there, and the the, the angles at which they're set, uh, the, the views are magnificent to be sure. But they they put you in a direction that that you, you miss some of the the street guidelines, and then the the park isn't really in front of you necessarily in some of the places. I always found that to be puzzling how they oriented the the architecture around that. Well, they're also because they're kind of on an angle, whereas the 57th Street buildings are sort of straight on too. Right. But those buildings are so tall that you see way beyond Central Park. Central Park is just the foreground. And so what are the neighborhoods that seem to be going through either urban renewal or something interesting that's going on architecturally? I I think, uh, you know, we certainly hear about Williamsburg and Brooklyn and uh, a host of other outer borough types of scenarios that are popping up. What's interesting to you these days? Well, actually, I think architecturally, Long Island City is going to be somewhat more interesting. If you look at where the tall buildings and the neighborhoods that are developing, they're all looking at Manhattan. Right. They're all looking at that skyline. So they're all along the water. Long Island City really has a very nice group of buildings. And from what I understand, a very nice family neighborhood. They're going to have a beautiful new library by Stephen Hall, which is absolutely exquisite. Um, They will have the view of the Roosevelt Island. It actually, in terms of just plain views, probably the Long Island City views are among the most interesting ones. And it's, you know, one subway stop from Manhattan, so it's not terribly far. Right. No, it, it's a, it's an interesting problem to have when you're in the boroughs and you're commuting in. You know, there's some functionality that uh, people forget when you're moving in from Brooklyn or uh, or Staten Island or any of the other boroughs and trying to get to work every day. Sometimes that's a real chore, uh, and it's interesting how that's working out in the in the design area, even with related to zoning and regulations. Well, you know, in Brooklyn Heights was developed earlier than most of the neighborhoods in Manhattan. And I always like to take people there and say, this is the way Manhattan used to be. Because there still are these really beautiful 19th century row houses, beautifully preserved. And then below them, and we hope the rest of them will stay below, um, there are these towers by Brooklyn Bridge Park. And the towers pay for the park because apparently we don't have taxes to pay for parks anymore. Right. <laughs> so developers pay for everything. They pay for housing. They pay for parks. But, you know, I can get to Brooklyn much more quickly than I can get to the Upper West Side. Right. And Williamsburg is relatively close on the L train. As long as the L train's running, which is always a problem. Or if you can get in it. I right. Mean, you have to be very thin <laughs> and very aggressive to get to the L train. So what are the trends that are popping up that are disturbing in New York City? I, 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 we hear a lot about poor doors, uh, limited access for uh, certain people in buildings, which are uh, really an offshoot of uh, sort of low-income housing credits that developers use in order to get their projects uh, financed and zoned correctly. I mean, the, the biggest problem is we've got half a million people with no place to live. Right. That's really the crux of it all. We have too many people, too few places. And I think putting people in the sections of rental buildings with apartments for affordable housing, it, it's perfectly fine to have. I don't object to the idea of affordable housing in high-rent buildings, except that the you're kind of taxing the people who've just moved to the city and live in those buildings. I mean, those rents are higher because they have to pay for the other people. It would seem to me to make much more sense to, and I know we can't do this because we can't raise the taxes, but to have taxes pay for, including real estate taxes, pay for the housing that we need to provide for people. And then you could provide the best housing for the particular populations. I mean, it strikes me that a lot of the boroughs, Manhattan's always going to be popular, and we seem to be jury-rigging a lot of our zoning and regulations in order to make building there as big and fancy as possible, which is how the developers make their money. And Brooklyn's been a natural offshoot of that. I mean, is it a function of improving transportation to the other boroughs to making it uh, to making it better? 
I think in part, I, there's, there's a planner named Alexander Garvin, very, very smart guy. Went to Yale, went to graduate school at Yale, taught at Yale. He's probably in his 70s. He lived the, on the Upper East Side, still lives on the Upper East Side, but he really knows New York and he teaches cities at Yale. And so he goes to all these cities and he meets his former students. So he, he knows a lot about cities. He thinks that if we could build a streetcar through the center of the Bronx, where the subways do not go, that you could make a lot of the land that's now kind of lying fallow very desirable for housing. Sort of remember back to Robert Moses and when he put the Cross Bronx Expressway, and that gets a lot of the blame for uh, really doing a lot of injury to the Bronx. Does, it, does that help solve that past error? Well, I don't know if it would solve that error so much, but I think what it would do is make it easier to commute for a large number of families. And the biggest need is for families with children. Now, those people are not eligible for the so-called affordable housing because those are very small units. So those tend to be sort of single people that have reasonably good jobs, you know, good sort of middle, lower middle class jobs. You can't apply for affordable housing unless you have a reasonably decent salary. Now, that's a little crazy, too. If you, you want to build affordable housing, you ought to build it as affordable as possible to the people that need it the most. Right. So uh, I mean, we're trying to solve all of New York urban planning problems and the various issues as far as getting people housed. A lot of times, a lot of my friends who come into town, uh, they usually have a bunch of different buildings that they want to see and they want to experience New York architecture. There are a lot of usual suspects, the Flatiron Building, Chrysler Building, uh, anything from the Empire State Building to the Metropolitan Museum, things like that. And I'm wondering if there are any neighborhoods that people uh, should visit uh, that are off the beaten path where they could see some real interesting New York City architecture. Well, of course, my, my favorite is Brooklyn Heights because that's this wonderful 19th century environment. But probably the most impressive from the standpoint of most Americans, the way most Americans want to live, which is in a single family house or in a row house or an apartment is Forest Hills. Forest Hills, uh, you know, which is in Queens, about a 45 minute subway ride from Manhattan, has beautiful large single-family houses, beautifully landscaped because they were built in the teens and 20s. So by now they've grown not really old, but good landscaping. There are row houses. There's Long Island Railroad service as well as the subways, I think three subway lines. There are later apartment buildings. And there's a downtown that every Midwestern city I know would give its eye teeth for, about a five-block downtown that's thriving. So that's, that's one place to see because it's sort of the American ideal. Right. Then there's Flushing. This is a trip to China. Take the seven train to Flushing, and there are 50 banks. And many Chinese businessmen come to New York and just go to Flushing. I mean, it's a huge community, and it has very early 18th century housing stock. But then it has a downtown that is China. It's really quite fascinating. One of the interesting places, I think, is Prospect Park. I think the, the townhouses that line the south end of the park there are just uh, amazing. It's one of those one of those areas that if you didn't know about it, you'd completely miss it. And I think it's a real gem in New York City. Well, Prospect Park is actually supposed to be sort of the perfected version of Central Park. Right. Central Park's in better shape because it has the Central Park Conservancy and it has a lot of rich people living around it that contribute to the Central Park Conservancy. So it's been fed by lots of money. But Prospect Park's a little bit down at the heels. They have a conservancy now, but they don't have, you know, it isn't lined by billionaires. But it's a superb park, has a wonderful new ice rink. It has the Brooklyn Museum, which is pretty fascinating. The library is right off of there. There's a Richard Meyer apartment building on the corner. So if somebody wants a little modernist something, and then the streets off to the west of Prospect Park look a lot like the Upper West Side, those big, muscular, sort of Victorian row houses and apartments. 
So generally speaking, who are the interesting young architects out there that uh, an architect fan or someone who's just generally interested should keep their eyes open for? Well, there is no such thing as a young architect that you've ever heard of, actually. <laughs> BBC once called me and said, we'd like, you know, we had this young professional thing. We'd like someone in their 20s. And I said, well, I could give you somebody in their 40s because it takes so long to become an architect. Right. <laughs> but um, um, I think among the most interesting architects working in New York today, there's a man named Alexander Gorlin, wonderful historian as well as architect. He builds housing for the richest and the poorest. He builds very fancy houses and apartments for people all over the world. And he's done a lot of Nehemiah housing in Brooklyn. Very solid, nice row houses, really beautiful communities. And he's now being brought in by some of the people from the housing authorities, the housing advocates, because he seems to have a wonderful sense of how you house poor people, even though he has some of the richest and most famous clients of anybody in New York. So he sort of does both sides. Then there's a firm called WXY, Weiss Plus Yost. It's a husband-wife team. And they have done things like Times Square, the visitor centers. They're doing the Astor Place Center. They've done the Battery Park. They did the Bronx School for the Arts, which is a, an old industrial building. Fabulous colors with wonderful light coming in. And the fabulous colors are in T-shirts. And the, the kids that go to the school all have a set of the T-shirts. So everybody sort of dresses the same. It's not uniforms. It's T-shirts. So it's modern. But it also sort of creates a community. They're very cool. Um, there's a firm called N Architects. I'm not sure how you actually pronounce it, but it's a little N in Big Architects. It's another couple, Eric Bung and Mimi Hong. And they won that competition for microhousing that took place at the uh, exhibition, was at the Museum of the City in New York. Right. And they're actually building one of those buildings on 27th Street, I think about 2nd Avenue. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's, um, you know, it's uh, modular housing. It's being made in a factory. Do you think that trend is going to catch on, uh, or is that something that's more novel? Several of the finalists in that competition already got commissions to build. Okay. I forget the exact figures. I think it's something like 40% of New York households are one person, and most housing was built with the idea that it would be maybe two, three, or four. So we, we really have a dearth of small unit housing. And one of the things that all these buildings have are a lot of communal facilities. They have gyms and they have restaurants and they have bar-like places and places where if you're living in a tiny space and you're living by yourself, you can meet other people. So they're, they're sort of a dormitory quality and sort of a resort quality to these buildings. I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't ask this question. I certainly live in the area and uh, the Flatiron Building is my favorite building in New York City. Uh, what's yours? Um, I think the Chrysler Building. The profile... Um, I like the way you see it from my neighborhood, Lexington Avenue. I think it's enormously graceful. I like it much better than the Empire State, I, the detailing. I'd agree um, with that. And it's so metallic. And I guess it's because it's a skyscraper. And I still think of New York and skyscrapers. The Flatiron Building was, of course, a skyscraper when it was built. Right. And, and it is one of the great ones. I mean, you can tell that a lot of people think it's one of the great ones because it's in the ads all the time. Well, Jane, thank you very much for coming on. I, I enjoyed having you here. And uh, I, every time I talk to you, I learn a lot. Good. I hope you learn correct things. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes episode one of the Fraser Rice podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll return for episode two, where my guest will be crime novelist Terrence McCauley. Terrence and I will be talking about his upcoming work and his writing process. If you're interested in reading my blog, or if you'd like to listen to future podcasts, log on to FraserRice.com. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.